Hi everyone, this is Brian Reisman, host of Side Jams, a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. I'd like to thank Pantheon sponsors AKG for the support of this podcast. Be sure to keep up with my show on Facebook, Instagram, or through my Brian Reisman account on Twitter. This is the second anniversary of Side Jams, and I have plenty of exciting interviews coming up. Stay tuned. Hi, this is Rick Allen with Def Leppard, and you're listening to Side Jams with Brian Reisman. Talented guitarist Adrian Smith is a member of heavy metal legends Iron Maiden, and 41 years after their debut album was released, the Grammy Award-winning British band continues recording new albums and playing to sold-out crowds around the world. They are arguably bigger now than back in the day. Adrian has also explored other musical projects, including ASAP, Psycho Motel, Primal Rock Rebellion, and the new Smith Kotzen project with fellow guitarist and vocalist Richie Kotzen. Their self-titled debut album is a bluesy hard rock affair that meshes their very compatible playing and singing styles into a strong sonic brew. A good tune to start off with is the anthemic track, Running. When he's not playing music, Adrian loves to go fishing. He even wrote a book about it called Monsters of River and Rock, My Life as Iron Maiden's Compulsive Angler. For episode 48 of Side Jams, Adrian spoke to me about his love for the sport, the different adventures he has had with it during his global travels, and how it relaxes him outside of the high-volume world of rock and roll. By the way, he's the only person I know of who's seen an actual Tasmanian devil, and he writes about that in the book. Although he helps generate a lot of heavy metal thunder, Adrian is a more laid-back, contemplative person offstage, and we had a fun time discussing his aquatic interest and his trips around the world. Well, thank you for taking the time to chat. No, no problem. No problem. We met very, very briefly back in 99. I think it was right when the Maiden reunion happened, and... They had some sort of press event, and then you went down to a pool hall in the east side of Manhattan in the 20s somewhere. Wow, I don't remember that at all. <laughs> That's a long time. I don't expect you to remember that. It's funny, though, because I had pictures with some of you guys, and my brother put them up at work, and I had really long hair back then, and his coworkers like, what's he doing with those guys? And my brother's like, oh, he's a new member of Iron Maiden. And the guy's like, really? <laughs> then after 10 seconds, my brother's like, no. No, he's not. <laughs> uh, you got him. <laughs> <laughs> I'm enjoying your collaboration with Richie. Oh, thanks. Thanks. I was thinking, hey, there was a band called ASAP, ASAP, back in 1990. And I was wondering if, if, you know, some of the stuff that you did with those guys, whatever, if you guys managed to do some shows, if you'd bring some of that stuff back as well. You know what? I never thought of that. I mean, a few people have asked us if we're going to do any uh, any shows. And um, we've been thinking about it. In fact, we plan to do some around the... Uh, around the same time as the album was released. But, of course, with the pandemic, we couldn't. But it's an interesting question. Yeah, I mean, we've only got nine songs we could we could choose from for live. So we'd be, we'd be dipping into the various back. I never thought about ASAP, or maybe, because it's slightly different. You know, it's a bit more um, what people called it AOR back in the day. So uh, Smith Constant's a little bit more dirty, down and dirty. But, um, well. Yeah. Be interesting. Be interesting. We have tunes like "Down the Wire" and "Misunderstood." I think those can kind of fit in. Yeah, with uh, your your new catalog that you're building. Yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe. Well, it's interesting because at first, you know, some people are like, "Oh, these guys are working together," but then you think about it, and like you have complementary bluesy voices. And when I was chatting with Richie a couple of weeks ago, I said, "Well, you know, it's like you're kind of bringing Adrian into your world." But then I listen to songs like "Running," I'm like, "Nah," and Adrian's bringing him Richie into his world. So it's like you guys find a good middle ground. Well, I suppose if, if, if people who just think of me and Maiden will find it a bit of a departure. People who know ASAP, know Psycho Motel, and know my, my other side, sort of bluesy rock side, 
uh, won't be too surprised. You know, I've wanted to make an album like this for a while. You know, I've, I've uh, I grew up listening to uh, Free, Humble Pie, you know, Purple. It changed my life. You know, so this music is very much in my blood. I started off life as a singer. I say not life. I started off my career as a singer. Yeah. And I learned to play the guitar as I went along. And from Dave Murray, who was the guitarist in Maiden, we, we were a team from when we were kids. That's right. I remember you in your book. Yeah. I always felt comfortable uh, singing and playing guitar. I mean, Richie's an expert at it. So it was great to team up with him. And uh, I think it's uh, it's just a bit something a bit different. You don't you don't get that too much. I always love bands that swap vocals. Humble Pie did it. Deep Purple, Mark uh, 2 or 3 did it. I always loved that, Glenn Hughes and Carbonell. So, um, you know, it's uh, it was a very creative uh, process, you know. And Dave actually owns one of Paul Kostoff's guitars. That's right. That's right, the Strat. The Strat that's on, um, I think, uh, Kostoff used in the latter part of 3 and in Backstreet Crawler, yeah. But Dave ripped all the pickups out of it. <laughs> I don't know if he's... I don't know if he's still got the original pickups in, but he put DiMarzio's in it, and it was his number one guitar when he did the Maiden uh, first album, first couple of albums, actually. Well, it's funny because I just did a, a, a Blu-ray commentary for Benny Hill's first movie, and Paul's father was in that movie, and I found out right. then that Paul's dad, kind of went, he was kind of very religious, I think, so he went on this crusade afterwards to try to teach kids about the dangers of drug abuse. I think he started a whole foundation dedicated to his son, yeah, I mean, he was an actor, David Kossoff. And, yeah, uh, yeah. He used to be on TV on Sunday afternoons doing a religious thing. <laughs> and so that's that's a strange one. And then after Paul Kossoff died, uh, tragically, you know, he went on the road and he tried to do a, like a, uh, did a tribute to his son and also warning people of the dangers of life in the fast lane, you know. Well, it's interesting reading your book too, because your dad sounds like an interesting character. Like there's a lot of times too the cliche, I think of a lot of working class guys is that especially in England, they'd be into like rugby or like you talked about feeling really manly when he finally took you into the pub, you know, and you'd gone fishing and all this stuff. And it was interesting that he seemed to have these different sides to himself. So he was like a good role model. He was, he could be, it seems like he, you know, he was quote unquote sort of the man, but he also had a sensitive side and did what he liked. Um, yeah, he was, uh, he was a man of another time, you know, I mean, from when he was born, probably in the thirties to, you know, when I when I came along, and you know, and then grew up, growing up in the seventies, the world changed massively. You know, yeah. he was involved in the Second World War. He went to India. He was in the Air Force and all this business. So for me to turn up and say, "I'm Dad, I'm going to be a rock musician," he thought I was mad. You know, <laughs> um, didn't understand it at all. Although, you know, he he admitted to me once he he had, had sort of dreams of being a singer in a dance band. You know. He could have done that. So he was a bit of a dreamer as well, you know, but a very simple guy, you know, he got up, he worked, went to work, he never missed a day's work, and loved his fishing on a Sunday, and he loved to get up and sing in the pub, you know, not a lot different than me, actually. <laughs> well, he got he got up with a little, like I think you joked with here, had a little liquid encouragement, and then your mom actually was, was played the fiddle, right? Violin. She did, yeah. I mean, um, well, we called it, when she played the Irish music, we called it the fiddle. And then when she played classical and she read, it was classic, you know, yeah. it was the violin. But so, uh, yeah, she was great. She was, uh, uh, she could really uh, knock a tune out of the fiddle for sure. And it's interesting too, because it, it, two sort of influences you have, you have the music and you have the fishing. And it yeah. sounds like fishing helps you 
I was talking to Damon Johnson about his love for golf, you know, and people say, Oh, golf and fishing aren't kind of like metal kinds of things to do, you know, (laughs) but then it's like, well, "Well, but you you can't expect people to be living that way all the time. Well, no, I mean, uh, and it's very Zen for both of you, right? When I, yes, exactly. I mean, when I, um, decided I want to be a musician, I was 15 and, you know, up, up to then I was an avid soccer player, avid, you know, fishing every, every week when I could, but I, I just gave it all up because I thought, well, you know, you've got to be dedicated. If I was, you know, learning a trade, I'd put all my time into uh, being a carpenter or whatever. But, you know, this I looked at, upon it as a trade and I, I put everything into it and I gave everything up. And it wasn't until I joined Maiden in 1980 that I started again. So throughout the 70s, I was just music, music, music. Joined Maiden and then it turned out that the drummer Clive Burr was a very keen fisherman. So we started to go fishing yeah. on tour. We took our rods on tour and we used to go on days off. It you know, kept us out of trouble to a certain extent, you know. To a certain extent, yeah. But I think for you too, it's good. I mean, it's been a, I imagine it's a very Zen kind of a thing too. It helps you focus. Yes, yeah, it's, it's the, uh, the contrast. I just love being, you know, on my own mostly out in the country, you know, the quieter, the better. Uh, and just, you, you know, it's like meditation with a punchline, you know. You sit there and you forget about everything else. You're concentrating on the fish and the fishing and what's in front of you. And you'll become part of the the countryside, you know, and then you'll find that the animals, the badgers or whatever, you know, that if you're quiet enough, you'll see them. You start to see them and you become a part of the part of the scenery. You know, I, I absolutely love it. Um, I, abs- I love being on stage as well. It's, it's, it's uh, you know, it's, it's uh, complete opposites. Um, playing for a bunch of different animals <laughs> <laughs> very good very good yes and imagine too for you i mean i think you had talked about too you had dealt with a little social anxiety when you were younger i imagine fishing that kind of meditation is also good for you as well yeah i mean i uh, during this lockdown it's been um, you know a lot of people have, have, have gone out onto the riverbank again for something to do and just just from for some mental a break from the from the pressures of the of the pandemic you know yeah uh the, it's grown in in numbers and um people are seeing the benefits of getting outside you know uh, the mental health benefits and it helped you when you were younger as well uh yeah yeah i mean i i joined maiden it was a bit of a bit of a whirlwind and um you know i was only 23 like i said i, I started off as a singer mainly then i joined maiden and i had to really focus on my guitar playing in Dave Murray was, you know, virtuoso. So I really, uh, I, I struggled a bit, to be honest, when I, when I first joined to sort of keep up with it all because, yeah, Van Halen that came out and you had Yngwie and all these amazing players. And I just thought, well, you know, so then I started to concentrate on the writing and gradually I managed to uh, write more for the band and my writing became important and I felt more comfortable being in that position. But at first it was like uh, I was, you know, on top of a mountain with a, you know, sort of hanging on by a thread sometimes, I thought. So the fishing definitely helped me, you know, you know, my state of mind sometimes. I could, you know, after a long tour, there's a picture of me in a book, actually, after the um, Peace of Mind tour we did, which was almost 12 months. Yeah. And then I went up into the wilderness in Canada and I just, in the middle of nowhere, there was bears and everything. And I'm, there's a picture of me in the middle of a lake and it's like flat calm and I'm just casting a fly. And that was just a few days after we finished the tour. And I was just like decompressing, you know, that sums it up really. 
I think you like the tranquility. I noticed that in, in a lot of the adventures you talk about, whether it's New Zealand, even in Central Park, you know, <laughs> which is interesting, you're, mm. you're, you're trying to find a spot where you can be alone. Yeah, it was pretty hard in Central Park, I must admit. But um, a lot of the times, you know, when you, when you go out and, uh, you know, I'll hire a car, you know, wherever we are on tour, and then I'll just take off and find somewhere to go, you know. And the great thing about America is it's, there's a lot of space, there's a lot of water, there's a lot of great places to, to go. Yeah. It's good that, you're, that uh, your wife liked it too. I was noticing before you got married, she was actually joining you fishing. Yeah, I think she was humoring me at first, you know. Um, and she just, <laughs> uh, you know, I was I was fanatical fishing. She came along and uh, she she got into it a little bit. But um, yeah, I mean, she she'll come out. She loves the, she loves the outdoors as well. Not so much the fishing, but she loves hiking and uh, just being in the countryside, you know. And also, she got you to to travel when you weren't really in the mood to travel anymore after touring. So she got to see some nature, and you got to indulge in your your love for fishing. Have you noticed different kinds of habits of fishermen from around the world? I mean, there's a certain etiquette that seems to follow from place to place, but if you found different attitudes in general or different behaviors? Uh, yeah. I mean, uh, one thing that does depress me when I, I go to, to places, uh, you see it all over the world, actually. Unfortunately, you're seeing it more in Britain now. Is the rubbish and yeah. uh, discarded fishing tackle. Like people leave big loads of line and wildlife get tangled up. So I think you pick you get people to go fishing, but they don't really understand the ethics of it. For me, I call myself an angler. So, you know, why you're actually catching fish? Apart from that, you are trying, you are sort of in sync with the with the whole thing, and you, you know you've got to be a bit conservation minded. Uh, that's why I, t- I write about in the book. You know, the fishing clubs I belong to. You get the guys out there; they'll be they'll be uh, cleaning up the rubbish, and they'll be you know, um, making sure the water flow is good and the spawning habitat for the future stocks and all this sort of stuff. But I, I do get a bit depressed about the, about the rubbish. And it's not just the anglers, it's just everyday people. And it's getting more of a problem in England. And that's something, uh, something that upsets me and something I'd like to get into sort of doing something about. Really? I mean, the only thing I can do at the moment is go out with a, a rubbish bag and pick stuff up. But it's just... Uh, in the England, in in the seventies, we used to think called, have a thing called keep Britain tidy, which was advertised on the yeah on the uh, telly. And you know, you know, clear clear crap up after you. You know, if people did that, it'd be it'd be everyone would be in a better mood. You know, um, small steps. You know, well, we had something in America too with the Native American. You know, who would be seeing all this rubbish thrown all over the place and he'd have a tear coming out of his eye. All the stuff we're dealing with right now, climate change, everything else. Is, mm. we, were, we were thinking about this back in the seventies. It's amazing how like, slow we are to deal with it, and yeah, but it's uh, the, the the whole you know dumping rubbish thing seems to be uh, seems to be getting worse. But um, anyway, and I found an interesting story actually in the Telegraph, one of your British papers, yeah, from 2015, talking about the fact that um, that the headline was Britain's Britain's biggest barbel fish, the big lady killed by otter, and it says anglers yeah. want to banish otters amid depleting fish stocks after 20 pound barbel. Dragged out of River Evel in Bedfordshire yeah. and had its throat torn out. So there's a there's kind of an odd conflict because in a sense, yes. the anglers are worried about the otters, but the otters in a way were sort of here first. <laughs> yeah, well, they were they were hunted to to extinction, you know, um, several hundred years ago in England, and uh, they've been reintroduced. Um, the trouble is, the, the fish stocks in England have got different pressure on them than they had a few hundred years ago. 
Right. Um, they probably didn't have the pollution, the industrial pollution. They didn't have the. Um, we have a problem with cormorant invasion. These, these um, seagoing birds are coming inland because of the depletion of the fish stocks in, in the sea. Yeah. Coming in and decimating, and I mean decimating uh, freshwater. So we've got um, an invasive species of crayfish. It's an American signal crayfish that was brought into the UK. Uh, a few years ago for the table but yeah. the, instead of being controlled they were they that escaped because they could walk across land so they escaped from the ponds into the rivers mm. they uh, they erode all the banks they eat the, the spawn of the fish so in the last 20 years uh whereas i could go down at my local river and for even catch a few fish you'd be lucky now to see to see any because the population has been decimated already and now you've got the otters and the thing about the otters, they'll they'll take a, a a big fish which has taken twenty years to grow, drag it out of the river, yeah, eat a small part of it and leave it, you know. And they're only doing what otters do. It's not there for. It's just that people are reintroducing them, and it's you know it could have done with a bit more thought because yes, otters were there first, but that was a, a different different time, you know. And now there's more pressure on the fish stocks. Uh, and, and the otters aren't helping. I saw one actually for the first time on my local river, and it was oh, really? big. Yeah, it was. It was late at night. It was big, and it, this thing was like a seal coming down the river. And they are fast as well. I mean, they're very efficient hunters. So, who knows? You know, it's depressing, really. Well, it's it's tough because you know it's the human and animal coexistence thing, and yeah. So I understand the fishers are frustrated at the same time. Like, and the otters have to live too, and then. We also have an issue with there's so many, I mean, there's just so many, there's so many of us now on the planet. Yeah. Do you have like secret fishing spots that you go to that other people don't know about? I'm not going to ask you to say where they are. But... No, <laughs> not really. I mean, certainly not in Britain. I mean, there's a lot of anglers there. It's very popular. Um, there's a lot of water, but there's a lot of anglers and uh, it's not a big country. So it's very, very, you know, the whole thing of finding the secret lake. Uh, I think, you know, I have an ideal in my mind what what I want you know, in my imagination, like a, a a serene place where no one goes and there's no rubbish and there's no distractions. <laughs> but that, in reality, is very few places like that. Maybe some some of the places in uh, there's a place called the River Wye, which is people call the last wilderness in in, in Britain. Yeah, and that's relatively unfortunately everything else is getting just too many people too many too overpopulated and it's it's politics you know people were coming in to to run businesses and, and it's um you know flooding into the country the cheap labor they're being exploited and there's just too many people but anyway let's not go there well, i was thinking you like to fish at night which is not something i ever really thought about i only did a little fishing when i was younger and i always thought people did it like early in the morning in the afternoon but it, is it that common to fish at night or is that more of an adrian smith thing no, a lot of people do. A lot of people do. I don't, I don't fish the whole night. I'll fish into darkness. Okay. Then you do get the peace because, you know, it's very quiet. But it does reach a point in the dead of the night where you think, well, I think I'll go home out of my bed. <laughs> <laughs> Are there any places you'd like to go fishing? Well, that I haven't been before. Yeah. Well, you know, there's. Um, I've been very lucky. I've been to some amazing places. Like I write about New Zealand in the book, went there yeah. in the 80s. And that is one of the... Uh, as far as I remember, it's one of the unspoiled uh, fishing paradises of the world. Beautiful, clean rivers and 
uh, not too many people, you know. That is uh, somewhere I'd like to go again. In fact, I had a trip booked there last year, but because of the pandemic, it all fell through. Yeah. Um, I was also, um, I went to the Cook Islands briefly, which is another place. Um, it's a place called Itutaki, out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, which has a huge bonefish, like record, world record size. But uh, as soon as I got there, we had to come home because of the pandemic. So <laughs> yeah. that's in my dreams still. You're the only person I know of that's seen a Tasmanian devil. So you, you mentioned it a little bit in the book, but what was that? What was it like when you first encountered that? What was the feeling you got off of it? It's not like the Looney Tunes character. Well, no, this was, this was incredible. This is incredible. We, we, we stayed at this lodge in Tasmania, called, uh, a place called London Lakes. Yeah. Uh, beautiful lakes. Very wild, wild country out in the middle of nowhere. Silence, you know. Um, loads, I don't know if you call them herds of kangaroos but large groups of kangaroos would be watching you from the trees yeah wherever you went um and one night one of the uh, guys said hey, fancy going on and a bit of a sort of late night safari after dinner so we jumped into his truck and he had the big lights on the truck we saw wombats they were incredible things uh, of course loads of kangaroos and uh, stuff and then he said oh, i think we found something special here and he sort of edged towards this clearing in the in the forest and there was this Tasmanian devil eating away at a dead kangaroo. That's right, yeah. And we got right up close to it. And, this, and we wound down the windows. And I say in the book, you know, the audio was added to the visual because you could hear the <laughs> this thing crunching bones. They don't leave anything. They eat the bones. They're scavengers, you know. And they, they're filling their role, you know, cleaning up the, uh, the dead um, animals that, that, you know, this kangaroo probably died they don't hunt devils they just they clear up you know they're not fast yeah boy when when they when they when they get something they don't let go you know so that was incredible yeah um there was also a, an animal called the tasmanian tiger hmm. which is thought to be extinct now we didn't see one of those but um that that fascinates me as well um but it's a horrible story they just got hunted you know hunted to extinction so you probably won't see one of them. They were like a big sort of coyote with stripes, you know. But, yeah, and was, uh, we saw the devil. We saw the devil. You saw the devil. And lived. How, how metal. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. We saw the devil and lived. Yeah. What I think is interesting too is you don't eat most of what you catch. You return it. I'm, I mean, I, I do sometimes. I mean, um, I used to go trout fishing a lot and I always used to bring home a couple of trout because they're good to eat. But a lot of the course fish in England are, are not great eating. Um, they used to eat them during the Second World War um, when there was rationing in the. That's in right. The, you mentioned that, yeah. Um, my dad used to tell me that when he was very young, he used to go out with a guy next door and they'd go over and catch these things called bream. Now, these things are not, you know, high cuisine. They're the, the roughest fish you can get, but they, during the war, they had to eat something. They were short of food. And so people, I, I think, you know, that's people. Uh, as well as for the food, they enjoyed going fishing. And of course, after the war, food became more plentiful and people just continued to go fishing, but they you know, just put the fish back, you know, because they weren't particularly good eating. I mean, you could eat them at a push, you know, but uh, I've eaten pike, I've eaten perch uh, in Europe mainly. Right. Countries like Germany and France, they eat more coarse fish. And you'll see guys fishing there and they'll stick everything in a bag and nothing goes back, you know. But, um, you know, they're bigger countries. I mean, in England, if people did that, you'd soon wipe out the, the, the whole fish stocks. What with the cormorants and the otters, you know, 
there'd be nothing left. Well, I remember in the book, you went by helicopter to one location, and then your guide said that later on, someone had gone and possibly caught the same fish that you had in this pond, yeah. this giant fish. Do you think you've ever caught the same fish twice? Oh, definitely. I've, I've read stories about people catching the same fish two or three times in a day, especially fish, fish like pike. They're very aggressive. But uh, like, how, do you, how do you know? How do you get that sense? Well, some, some, um, some fish like carp, mirror carp, have, um, there's a couple of different kinds of carp, but one the common carp looks exactly the They all look the same, you know. They're all fully scaled. But mirror carp were bred for the table by the monks uh, in Europe in the, in the Middle Ages. Right. So they bred them to not have scales, so they, they'd be easier to clean and, and eat. So all the, these the descendants of these fish have very distinctive scale patterns. So you'd know if you caught the same one twice, and you know. So that's how you'd tell, really. You're a dad, so do your kids like fishing at all? Or is it, uh, that's a dad? Um, my son goes fishing with me a bit, yeah. My, my girls, no. No, they, they just don't don't see it at all. But um, me and my son go, we, we go on trips, we go to France, we've been to uh, Spain, you know. Yeah, he enjoys it. But he's not like, a, he's not in his blood like me. But I mean, when I was a kid, you know, it was soccer, fishing, and then later on music, and that was it. Now, kids have got so many other things, you know. Like what else does he do besides fishing? Video games? Yeah, well, yeah, it was the job to get them off their, um, we had to, you know, you have to limit their time on, on computers and stuff. But um, so, you know, yeah, the digital world is just massive now, isn't it, with kids. So uh, they're having trouble re- recruiting kids for soccer teams, which I find incredible in England, which was, it was such a big sport when I, you know, and that's just, I'm sure that's across the board, you know. You know, it's very addictive, uh, the digital world, isn't it? It's so convenient. Well, isn't it funny, though, because you think about it, some people might find fishing boring, but if you're sitting in front of your computer, it's sort of a similar thing. Like, you're not actually moving that much. Actually, you're getting more emotion out of going fishing. Yeah, so. I mean, at least, you know, sometimes I walk miles, you know, with with uh, with all my pack and, and, and equipment, and uh, it's a workout, believe me. But, um, yeah, most of the time, you're just sitting on your, on your behind. <laughs> so now that you're an experienced fisherman, what kind of advice do you give your son? about fishing um i try and guide him i mean like i say he doesn't go on his own he'll only come with me so yeah i just i try to make him do as much as he can because there's no point in that's why i I hate fishing with uh, going on these charter boats because you don't really do anything everything's done for you okay you may catch a 300 pound marlin but there's no there's no achievement in that to me i mean i'd rather go down my local and catch a you know, ten pound barbel. Um, it's it's by my own design. You know, it, that's that's the satisfaction of fishing. So if we go out, I say, well, you know, here's the lake. Where do you think they are? You know, make your own decisions. I know there's different types of fishing. You're an angler. I know there's also fly fishing, which is sort of a variation on that. Is there others? Are there other types of fishing that you'd like to try? Well, I do fly fishing. I love fly fishing. Um, uh, I do a lot in the Turks and Caicos, which is where Richie and I did some recording as well. Were you doing that with Kevin Shirley? Kevin Shirley mixed the album. Yeah, yeah. You know, we, we'd recorded it all between Richie and I. Richie had even done some rough mixes. And then we went into lockdown and Kevin um, Kevin got in touch and said, you know, have you got any projects you're working on? It? I'm, I'm not doing a lot at the moment. I'm just, you know, locked down in my studio. So I said, yeah, I've just done a scene with Richie. And he said, wow, cool. So he said, uh, send me a track and I'll, I'll have a listen and maybe do a mix for you. So we sent him a track and of course he did a mix and it sounded amazing. 
Yeah, yeah. So I ended up doing the whole record. Yeah, I visited him at his Malibu studio like five years ago, and he was oh, mixing, yeah. mixing a Joe Bonamassa live record. Yeah. So I got to watch him work work his magic with his fingers. Yeah. Very I mean, quickly. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, the first when we first started working with Kevin, um, we were surprised because we Martin Birch had a different way of working. Uh, Kevin gets a, a great sound immediately. Like the drums sounded huge and the guitars were very, everything was very live. Uh, and we went in to listen back to, the, I think the first song we did when we reunited was Wicker Man. We went back in the control room. We were just knocked out with the sound he was getting and it wasn't even mixed. He kind of mixes as he goes along. So by the time he gets to the mixing stage, he just tweaks it a little bit. So um, he's great. Yeah, Kevin. When you were recording the album, did you, did you get any good fishing down there? Did you get Richie into it? Well, we, we rented a house and it was on a, on a, a canal which was attached to the to the sea there and uh, I used to go out there in the evenings and uh, I said come on Richie I'll give him a fishing rod he lasted about three minutes before <laughs> he went back in the house for a, a glass of wine you know so um, no it's not I don't think it's his thing <laughs> which is interesting because he was talking to me about gardening so that requires some patience as well is it just a patience thing or he just didn't have the interest in the fishing <laughs> I don't know I don't know I think uh, he likes he, he does a lot of uh, I know he does a lot of construction work at his place. Sometimes I ring him up and he's, he said, oh, I'm just, um, I've got a chainsaw. Or I'm, uh, I'm chopping the tree down or something. I say, you're a guitarist and you've got a chainsaw. There's something wrong there. You know, you mind how you go. You know, you should be messing around with chat, but he loves doing all that, you know. I know you guys, uh, you guys have to be careful, man. You got to be careful. Well, yeah, like yeah. Not, not hitting things, you know, I think. Uh, Absolutely. As far as fishing, could you imagine yourself being a professional fisherman? Is that something? Because I noticed in the book, you didn't seem very thrilled about a lot of the competitions. Well, I, I talked about American competitions and it was very razzmatazz. They, they uh, keep the fish in a, in a live well in a boat. Yeah. And then they take it back to a, a marquee and then there's an audience and they, they, uh, they hold the fish up and everything like that. And then they, but I mean, the fish survive. I mean, you know, that's all right. And the fishermen are incredibly skillful. I could never do that because they're out and they fish day after day. They get up at five in the morning. They're out on the water all day. And uh, if you watch the TV coverage, it looks really stressful for everyone (laughs) concerned. So I really wouldn't fancy that. I like to pick and choose my times to go fishing. You know, sometimes, and that's why I fish on my own because people want to go fishing. They want to go at dawn and I, I... uh, no, I, I just go when I feel like it, you know, chill out. It, it defeats the objects for me. I just want to chill out. I don't want any pressure or stress. <laughs> I imagine playing in front of 20 or 30,000 people a night. And then, you know, you don't want to be doing that when you're fishing in front of being in front of a TV audience or hundreds of people. You probably just <laughs> want to take it easy. No, but, you know, power to those guys. They're very, very skillful and uh, they love it so you know and they earn you know can earn good money at it so good luck to them but um you know with with playing i, I think i've got to the stage now with maiden anyway that i can go on stage apart from the first few shows on the tour i could just really enjoy it and this, this the stress levels are a lot less than, than the 80s when you were going on stage with uh, often opening up for bands on big american tours and yeah. not really having any sound checks and it was like a battle you know, the sound was sometimes like a cacophony, you know, in these big arenas and 
you didn't get a sound check and you just have to kind of ignore it, but it was stressful and you had to try and win the audience over. Nowadays, you know, we've got in-ear monitors. It sounds like a live album, what I'm hearing, and you can just cruise, you know, and enjoy the enjoy the uh, thing. And I think it's sort of like a something you have to earn over the years, you know. And now we're in that nice position of, of, of just go out and just enjoy every minute of it. Yeah, I mean, obviously, when you're in a touring band, you don't get to see as much of certain places, especially when you have a rigorous tour schedule. So, like in the book, you talk about the great places you visit. You love visiting, like down under, and you've been in different parts of the, of the world. But at the same time, you get to you you also talk a little about the history places like El Salvador and Delhi, India, where like you're dealing with sort of a darker part of history. And so, there's a bit of a travelogue aspect to your book, also, which is fun. Yeah, well, I suppose it's uh, you know the nature of my job. Um, yeah, I mean. We got the round the world ticket again at the, my wife's prompting, you know, she's, she was a great traveler. She always loved traveling even before she met me. So it was just as well, you know, she liked traveling because we certainly did a lot. And she, she suggested getting a round the world ticket and just, just, just seeing everywhere. So that was when we went to New Zealand, but we stopped in, in India. Tahiti. And, uh, uh, and Tahiti, but India was an eye opener, you know, poverty, and uh, the way of life that uh, went up to Kashmir. I went up to Kashmir because um, I'd heard that there, there was trout fishing up there, and there is, but uh, the, the time of year we went there, there was, um, uh, was no water in the river. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. it's a bit difficult to fish because there's no internet then, on, you know, so I couldn't just look it up on the internet. I had to actually go, physically go there. Uh, there was a lot of tension up on the border. Kashmir is close to Pakistan. Yeah. And uh, there was a lot of uh, military up there, uh, a lot of tough-looking guys, um, you know, almost looked like bandits with with uh, sort of uh, bullet belts on and, and guy carrying guns around. So uh, a different kind of heavy metal. Oh my god, yes, and uh, yeah, Tahiti, of course, was was uh, was lovely, complete opposite, you know. But um, it was nice to travel and, and, and be able to to get a taste of the the place without you know, moving on constantly like you are in rock and roll, you know, you don't really get a chance to see it and you, you know, you have to get rest. So you can't go out sightseeing really. So uh, it's nice to do something at a leisurely place, you know. Well, it sounds like fishing has brought another, a nice aspect. It sort of opened up your life actually in different ways other than just actually sitting there fishing. Yeah. I mean, I'm not really one to sit on a beach and just uh, worship the sun. I like to do stuff when I'm, when I've got time off. I like to do things. So, you know, fishing has got me out and took me to some amazing places. I guess finally, if you could sum up your philosophy of fishing, what would it be? Is there a philosophy of fishing that you have? Philosophy? I don't know. It's a philosophy in itself, isn't it? Um, It's balance, really. You know, I, I used to think if I could go fishing every day, I'd be happy. But I think the anticipation of fishing is almost as good as the actual fishing. So when you're working, I found and that's how the book starts. You know, I'm on the road. Yeah. Stressful situation. <clears throat> I'm in the back of a van. We're in a police escort, which people think is very uh, glamorous. Glamorous, but it's anything but, especially if you get car sick and you can't, you're going 80 miles an hour and then someone's slamming on the brakes. Um, like that's the way the book starts. So I just kind of put my seat back and imagine I was fishing. So that's often the, some of the sweetest moments are like that. And you can really just make, it's like meditate. You don't even have to go fishing. You just dream of being, being by the, by the river and you, you, uh, you've done yourself a power of good already. It was funny. You just reminded me of a great, did you ever see that movie night gallery? 
It was the Rod Sterling TV series. Rod had, Sterling, yeah. And there's a yeah. guy that's like, a, he's basically a, a Nazi war criminal who is hitting, hidden down in like Argentina and he keeps going to a museum. So he sees this picture. It's a painting of a guy fishing and he keeps imagining himself in the picture. And he knows he's going to get arrested for the terrible things that he's done. And finally, the police are on to him and they start chasing him and he goes in the museum and he sits down, he goes in front of the painting and he, he prays to God. He goes, please, God, please just put me into the picture. And of course, it turns out not to be the picture he expected because they moved it. Oh, so... Have you seen that? No, I love those. I love those uh, Night Gallery and Twilight Zone and all that. It's the pilot movie. It had a, a one episode directed by Spielberg with um, Joan Crawford. Wow, it, that's a, that's the best one. It's yeah, the, the ending. You're like, oh, that's not so good. Um, yeah, I'll have to. It's probably on YouTube. I'll check it out. Listen, man, thank you, thank you. It was great to chat with you. All right, yeah, okay, nice to talk to you. Hopefully, we'll see you and Richie out on tour. Yeah, we'd love to be get out. Hopefully, this. Uh, things will get back to normal we can get out of there i know and some asap stuff now i'm gonna keep re-listening to that all right <laughs> cool well have a great weekend man i appreciate your time thank you hopefully get some more fishing in yeah absolutely next week cheers excellent cheers catch you later thanks bye that wraps up the latest side jams please join me for the next episode which will feature adrian's collaborator in smith Cotson, richie Cotson. as always my theme music comes from fox and the law licensed through audio socket Thank you very much for listening. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.